Amen. Let us turn to the Holy Word of God, Ruth, chapter 3. That is page 284 in the Blue ESV Bibles. Joshua Judges uh, Ruth, Ruth chapter 3. The word, uh, the Hebrew word at the beginning of verse 8 is rightly translated uh, midnight. It's a specific word, middle of the night. We come to midnight in Bethlehem. Ruth chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, that is Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a Redeemer, yet there is a Redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, 
How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So far the reading. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our Lord endures forever. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the historical narrative of Scripture is not the same as the giving of law. In the Holy Word of God, we have both narrative texts and law codes, and they are both instructive to us. They are both useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, but not in the same way. The short way to summarize the difference is this, is to say that descriptive is not always prescriptive. That which is described for us in the history of God's people is not always a command for us. And so at this point, let's say something that should be obvious. This chapter is not Biblical Dating 101. This chapter is not completely prescriptive for us. And so as we consider the scheme of Ruth chapter 3, even those who take the most favorable views of the women in this chapter have described the plan, the scheme of Naomi and the execution of that plan by Ruth as hazardous, compromising. One commentator who leans toward a more charitable interpretation than many still says of the plan, quote, the delicacy of the scheme is obvious and the potential for disaster is extreme, end of quote. But not for the first time in this little book. We see God working mercifully through the stumblings of his people. Indeed, we can rightly say that the hazardous tension of this chapter is broken as God leads his people into good works prepared beforehand, as this is thankfully one time when one bad decision does not lead to a whole series of bad decisions. We have both stumblings and kindness. We have tension broken by speeches of kindness and grace. And so we'll consider these things with a theme which was very similar to our theme from chapter 1 because the overarching theme in in the book of Ruth is God's mercy even though his people are not perfect. And so our our theme for chapter 3 here is this, that God works mercifully through the stumblings and virtues of his people. We do see virtue. We do see speeches of kindness and grace as well. Our first point is into the darkness of night. Our second point, a light in the dark. And then our third point, following the narrative where where it's really just kind of wrapping up and, and giving us a little anticipation of what is to come, our third point will be very brief, into the light of day. Well, let's begin with, with the scheme, into the darkness of night. 
And let us say this, that even when anxiety is somewhat understandable, anxiety should not give birth to panic. Naomi and Ruth came at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the end of barley harvest. They have been in Bethlehem for about three weeks. And after this short amount of time, they are ready for a rash scheme. Now, as we've said, for those who have been here for for Ruth 1 and Ruth 2, Naomi and Ruth are in a difficult situation. To be a widow in 1000 BC was very difficult on multiple fronts. Have you ever panicked in a difficult situation? Now, when it comes to the provision of food, it is true that the law of God provides a uh, edge around the margins of the field for the poor. And it is true that Boaz has been more than gracious with the margins of his field. And so that first provision for Naomi and Ruth has been provided. They have food. They came empty. They came in a very desperate situation. Their first need has already been met. But will they always be able to depend upon such kindness? Will the field owners of Bethlehem always be so gracious with their margins? And then, brothers and sisters, there's another law of God which provided for the family of the widow in the Old Testament. And we're going to kind of stop and think about it a little bit because it's one of those laws where it's a little bit strange to us. It's it's not a law that we still have. It's a national law. But it's very important for Ruth Four and for Ruth 3. And that law of provision is something we just mentioned a little bit when we looked at Ruth 1, verses 11 to 13, but we're going to talk about it in more detail here. It's the brother-in-law marriage law, the Leverite laws. And according to this law, detailed in Deuteronomy chapter 25, when a widow was left as a widow without any children, the brother-in-law was obligated by marriage or was obligated by law, if he was not married, of course, to marry the widow and to provide for her and to protect her and to provide an heir for the land for her. It's, uh, being a widow is a very desperate situation in ancient Israel and the law, the, Lever- the Leverite law, provides by law a husband for the widow. But you might be thinking, Boaz is not a brother-in-law. And when Naomi described something of this law back in chapter 1, verses 11 to 13, didn't she describe the situation as, as hopeless? Yes and yes, Boaz is not a brother-in-law. And the letter of the law in Deuteronomy chapter 25 does not help Ruth and Naomi. We'll see, especially as we come into Ruth chapter 4, that the spirit of the law may help them. And so there's this this understanding that the, 
that the direct laws of Deuteronomy 25 can be expanded beyond the brother-in-law, but the protection is not as clear. It is not as well-defined. It is not as specific. As Ian Duguid once helpfully summarized the situation, there are loopholes. Quote, there are plenty of loopholes that Boaz could have slipped through and absolved himself of any legal responsibility. End of quote. What did the Levirate laws do? They provided for the widow and for the widow's family in a specific and special way. But the protection of that law is tenuous. The letter of the law does not help Ruth and Naomi. Now, Naomi seems to be thinking that since Boaz could be considered a redeemer, even though he's got all those loopholes that he could jump through, and since Boaz has been so generous with the margins of his field for the gleaning laws, maybe he will be generous in taking on the much more sacrificial rights, privileges, responsibilities of the Leverite law. And she may even be thinking that Ruth and Boaz both give a firm testimony in the Lord. These, these things may all be in the background of Naomi's thoughts. Some of them are, are, we know they're not just in the background. She spoke about how Boaz is one of our redeemers at the end of chapter 2. And so uh, she comes up with these, this plan, this scheme. As Sinclair uh, Ferguson put it in his excellent little book, Faithful God, an exposition of the book of Ruth, Naomi seems to be thinking, quote, why not give heaven a little helping hand on earth? But as Ferguson continues, quote, this is the residue of the spirit that earlier led to the immigration from the promised land. If God does not do things speedily enough for us in our way, then we will take matters into our own hands. End of quote. Now let's just step back for a moment here. The cultural situation and the laws of providing for widows, that all seems very strange to us and and we don't have the same kind of national laws. And so some of the things are a little bit hard for us to step into, but when we just step back and consider the, the big picture, have you ever been dissatisfied with your situation? Have you ever felt that the commandments of Scripture or the providence of God are not taking you in the direction or moving you into the place as quickly or as speedily or in the way that you want. And so you need to take matters into your own hands. The moral law of God that we must wait upon the Lord, that's a commandment that's given to us in many forms in both the Old and New Testaments. It's stated plainly and repeatedly in Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. 
Now, the plan of Naomi is not only rash because of its impatience. They've been in Bethlehem for three weeks. It's also rash because of when it's happening, where it's happening. What did, um, what did the men do uh, when the grain was threshed? Well, now you have this huge pile of harvested and threshed grain, and they would sleep around the pile of grain to protect it. All the way through the at least the early 1800s, this was still a widespread practice in the Middle East. You get your big pile of grain, and then you sleep outside under the stars. Well, what would sometimes happen, and maybe even especially happen in times like the dark days of the judges? What would happen when the men were sleeping outside in the, in the open air, in the dry season, when there's no threat of rain, and when they're outside of the city gates, and when they're outside their home, and all of these things? What, what might happen? Well, Hosea chapter 9 tells us what would happen. Prostitutes would seek their wages on threshing floors. That's the, that's the cultural background of this. That's where Naomi sends Ruth after Ruth takes a bath and puts on perfume. And so Ruth goes. She arrives when it's light enough to see which part of the grain pile Boaz is defending, laying down next to, and then in the darkness, she is to go to him. And Ruth does all that Naomi commanded her. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And if through verse 7 we're feeling tension in the text, it's because we should be. And the greater the cultural understanding we have, the greater the tension is. The narrative has taken us to the darkness of midnight and the situation has taken us to the edge of the moral cliff. Where will this rash scheme go from here? Well, brothers and sisters, there's a light in the dark. Verses 9 to 13. There are no city lights near or far. It must be very dark. But when Boaz wakes up at midnight, he can tell that the woman uh, at his feet is a, is a woman, probably because he can smell the perfume. And so he asks, the Hebrew word you is feminine, who are you? Which, what woman are you? Who is at my feet here? Now, at this point, the instructions from Naomi, as Ian, as Ian Duguid put it, they are, quote, dangerously ambiguous, end of quote. For even knowing that Boaz is a man of character, he will tell you what to do, verse 4, the instructions of Naomi, are very much on the cliff edge. But Ruth is going to diverge from the instructions of her mother-in-law at this point. Here, the tension begins to break. Is Ruth perhaps feeling a little bit guilty about the situation that she is in? Because in some ways, she looks like a prostitute right now, but she is not going to sound like one. 
She does not want to leave things ambiguous. Ruth makes her intentions clear. Now, once again, verse 9, there's a little bit of cultural separation. But verse 9 is, in Old Testament Hebrew language, a proposal of marriage. Not just any proposal of marriage, but specifically a proposal that Boaz would marry her under the stipulations of Leverite marriage so that he might provide both for her and for Naomi. It is a proposal of marriage. It's a proposal for a specific Israelite kind of marriage whereby she's asking Boaz to pledge support both for her and for Naomi. You are a redeemer. It's a proposal of marriage in a very specific way. She might look a little bit like a prostitute right now, but she does not sound like one. The tension is breaking. There's still a little bit of tension, though. Boaz hasn't said anything yet. What will his response be? Ruth has used words that would remind Boaz of what he said in chapter 2, verse 12. That would remind Boaz of his joy in her testimony of faith. Because to be under the wings of the Lord is Old Testament language for conversion. You're coming under the protection of the Lord God. And to be under the wings of a man, again, this is the proposal of language. It's the, it's the same kind of language. I want your wings over me. I'm asking for you to be my protector. I'm asking for you to be my leader. Even as by using the word redeemer, I'm also asking you to provide for my mother-in-law. All of this leads us to Boaz and his response. And people of God, what a gracious response this is. And now the tension is totally broken. What a gracious response this is. For just a second, let's think about other responses that could have been. Boaz could have smelled the perfume and tried to take the conversation in a whole other direction. Boaz could have done great harm with words of unkind speech. You really are a Moabite, aren't you? Coming to the threshing floor at midnight. But the response is nothing like this. It's humble. It elevates Ruth. It takes Boaz down. Let's think just about the language of old and young for a moment. Is Boaz really that old? We don't know exactly how old he is, but he's not so old. He can, he can go out and he can work all day and he can sleep under the stars. Is Ruth so young? She was married for 10 years and then widowed. But Boaz doesn't say that. He says, you are young and you could have gone after young men. Indeed, there's an implication. You could have sought marriage outside of the Leverite marriage structure. 
You didn't have to pursue a marriage that would provide for your mother-in-law. And Naomi is very much part of this picture still, even though her name is not named. This kindness is greater than your first. What was her first kindness? That's his first speech that he made to her three weeks ago about her kindness to her mother-in-law. He recognizes that he is asking her, that she, that Ruth is asking him to provide not only for her, but also for Naomi. There's, there's a lot here that's about Boaz and Ruth. This is plainly a declaration of love with everything but the word love. But it's not just about it's not just about Boaz and Ruth. Naomi is the unnamed, but not so subtly, especially when you understand the, the, the cultural laws and surrounding context, Naomi is very much part of the picture here. Provide for me and for my mother-in-law. I will be a redeemer. I will do it. And I see your kindness to your mother-in-law and uh, I'm not going to tear you down. I'm not going to talk about how uh, hazardous the situation is. I'm not going to say anything about you being a Moabite at all. I will do it. I will do it. This is kindness and grace. And this is no ordinary love story. I, I challenge anyone here to find me a Hollywood or Hallmark movie script where the proposal scene has the mother-in-law, who is not the birth mother of either character, as a major, not-so-subtle part of the proposal. Find me that and, and let me know if there's one that exists. I don't think there is. I will provide for you both. Now, where do we go from here? Because for all that we can learn about how important it is for us to guard against one bad decision leading to another bad decision, and for all that we can learn about the kindness and grace and mercy of both of these speeches, especially the speech of Boaz, at this point, let's take our eyes and our hearts somewhere else because, because we need another midnight in Bethlehem, do we not? We don't know if, if Jesus was born in the cold of winter. We don't know what season he was born, but we do know that he was born in the night. Luke chapter 2. He was born in the darkness of night. And we know where he was born. A little more than a thousand years after this, in the same town, under the same stars, Jesus is born around midnight in Bethlehem. And we need that unquestionable light. And there's some tension that yet remains here in terms of the human love story. There's another redeemer nearer than I for, for me to not only marry you, but to marry you under the rights, privileges, responsibilities of the Leverite marriage law. First, that right has to be declared to another. 
If we're going to get married in the way that provides for Naomi and for you in a special way, we have to first test that. And so Ruth chapter 3, the, the tension is broken, but there's, there's, still, there's still tension. But when we come to the perfect and unquestionable midnight in Bethlehem, when we come to the birth of the perfect baby boy born under the law, born not as the result of a rash and quickly concocted plan, but born as a result of the eternal plan, the pactum salutis, the plan of salvation established before the beginning of time. Then we come to the one who can save us from all our sins. Then we come to the one who is the Savior, God incarnate, God on earth. He lives and dies and rises from the grave. And that is the midnight in Bethlehem that we need. And that is the midnight in Bethlehem where as we trust in Him, the tension is gone. It's done. It's accomplished. He saves. There's no more question. There's nothing else left to, there's nothing else left to, to anybody's hands. We don't have to worry about what Mr. So-and-so might say. He saves. It is done. We must come to the midnight in Bethlehem when the light of the world was born to save us from the darkness of our sins. And that is the most beautiful part of Ruth chapter 3. Not that Boaz and Ruth love each other, not that they have a clear love for Naomi, but that this is part of the history of salvation leading us to that midnight in Bethlehem. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 1 where really all of the primary applications of Ruth chapter 3 come to us in letter form and a handful of verses. Listen to how Colossians 1, verse 9 to 14, speak about our need to wait patiently upon the Lord, our need to, to walk in the light, to, to seek to walk in God's virtue and His commands, even, even if we've had one bad decision that's put us in a difficult situation, and our need, our great need, for the salvation of Christ alone. It's all here in a handful of verses. Colossians chapter 1 beginning at verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And praise the Lord that we have the clear letter declaration and 
and the history of salvation, both given to us for a full understanding of the work of God, of the plan of salvation, of God's care for us. And also, it's not the first it's not the first application, but also an example of the virtues that we are called to breaking into, even breaking apart what could have been a series of bad decisions. And with that, brothers and sisters, let's come to our third brief point, into the light of day. The tension is not totally broken. Verse 12, there's another kinsman redeemer. In order to be married according to the Leverite laws and all the rights, responsibilities, privileges of that law, there's going to be, there is, there is a hurdle that yet remains. But they are both committed. Ruth and Boaz are both committed to that full course, the full course which would give the greatest provision to Ruth and Naomi also. And so, so notice, now, now Naomi has been mentioned by name as Boaz sends Ruth back. It was a compromising situation, even though every indication of the text is that uh, chastity is possible and that that is how the night remained. But it was a compromising situation, and so he says, verse 14, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And then he gives her these six measures of barley, and we actually have to go down to verse 17 to see what he said when he did that. He said, because you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Again, he's saying, I'm going to provide for both of you. And we're not told, we're not told measures of what. It's either uh, six omers or six sias. So it's either 30 pounds, which is a little less than what she had in chapter 2, but still a big amount, or 80 pounds. We already know from Ruth, too, that, that Ruth is quite a strong woman, so maybe it was 80 pounds. But whether it's sias or omers, what's, what's important is that it's six measures, and it's another substantial amount. What is six? Six is almost seven. Even symbolically, Boaz is saying, I'm, I am giving you six measures and I am going to work for the seventh measure. I'm going to do all that I can to provide for you and your mother-in-law on this earth. Here's the six measures. I'm going to go work for the seventh measure Naomi is right. He will not rest, but will settle the matter this day. Naomi's hazardous scheme has, in an earthly sense, worked. Praise the Lord that he is often merciful to us as we stumble along the way. How many times do we wander and stray? Do we fail to do things as we should? But the Lord's mercy is much greater than even His most merciful of servants. He takes us safely through. For we always need the light of the world, Jesus Christ, 
and should always long for the light of the eternal day that he brings when he brings us through the night. It's to eternal day. In heaven, there is no night. O Savior, King of glory, who dost our weakness know, bring us at length, we pray, to the bright courts of heaven and the endless day. Amen. Let us pray. Our merciful...